This is a Power 98.7 podcast. Now we're talking. Subscribe to Power 98.7 podcasts in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. There's more on power987.co.za. Now we talk higher education and the progress on funding. Now, this is definitely not a new conversation whether um whether you go back to the Prof. Balintulo report, whether you go back to the Ramaphosa report, whether there's just been so much work. You go to the Council on Higher Education and the work that they have done on this question. Volumes of books uh, have been produced, but we are still somewhat very far to the solution and the debt burden. Um, of our universities in terms of historic debt uh, owed to it by students is continuously growing. Some universities have had to write it off as bad debt. And some, of course, uh, are students who uh, may have had to drop out for financial reasons. They've never had the opportunity to complete their degrees and therefore perhaps are not even employed and so on. In some instances, some have completed but are unable to pay the historic debt. And there's been a big talk about universities being able to allow them to receive their academic records, academic transcripts, uh, so that they can actually go on to look for employment and possibly uh, be able to repay that money. Anyway, I've got on the line uh, my guests uh, who are going to take us through this conversation this morning. Dr. Linda Mayer is uh, acting CEO at University of South Africa. Dr. Mayer, good morning and welcome to Power Talk. Good morning. Thank you. I've got uh, Prof. Philippe uh, Berger, uh, Professor of Economics and Pro-Vice-Chancellor Poverty, Inequality and Economic Development at the University of the Free State. Uh, Prof. Berger, good morning. Welcome to Power Talk. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much. And of course, I also have Asive Lanjwa, South African Union of Students spokesperson. Asive, good morning. Uh, good morning uh, to you and to your listeners and to the rest of the panelists. Thank you so much. Prof. Beggar, perhaps let me start off with you to kick off this conversation. Uh, I mean, probably the the most comprehensive report I can remember is the 2013 one, which was chaired by now President Cyril Ramaphosa on behalf of the, of the Minister of Higher Education and Training, as it was called at the time, which really traversed a, a huge terrain and he spoke about how in real terms uh, there has been decline in the funding of higher education. I mean, we are almost 10 years after that report, but uh, there was something that came out in that report, if I remember reading the executive summary uh, by the chairperson uh, Ramaphosa himself, where they alluded to the fact that they view higher education as a public good with private benefits, and for that reason, uh, the state must cover the public good element and the individuals or at least their families, must cover the private benefit part of it. I always like to start there, Prof. Becker, because I think the Mm -hmm. philosophical understanding of what higher education is or ought to be is actually at the heart of the funding question because in some countries they've accepted it as simply a public good and they fund it for everyone to get a first degree. Here we are saying a public good with private benefits. Surely it has implications for funding. Just take us through from there, Prof. Beggar, but also just perhaps paint a picture. I mean, if we were in nominal terms, I think at the time then it was, what, uh, about 1.1% decline year on year. I mean, have we seen a change in the funding space of higher education? Yes. Uh, Good morning. Yes. uh, So um, 
I'm, I'm going to start with an example to explain this public good and private benefit yeah. thing a bit. So let's think about uh, an engineer. So a university trains an engineer. Now that person uh, will therefore earn a much higher income with that qualification compared to not having that qualification. Mm. So that that increase in salary, that that difference in salary between having no qualification, no post school qualification, and having an engineering qualification, that difference is basically your private benefit. Mm. Uh, but now, if I put that engineer in a company, and that engineer, through applying his or her skill, uh, create jobs for you know ten or twenty or fifty other people then that is like a spillover effect uh, through the creation of those extra jobs. Those mm. jobs uh, would not have existed if that engineer was not there creating uh, a company, let's say, or creating a project or creating a product that, that necessitates the employment of these other people. And, and that spillover effect we can interpret as, as the public benefit. Mm. That, is, that is in a strict economic sense of the word. But of course, there's also a broader sense um, in, in which, you know, uh, people are, you know, the, the, the better educated they are, the more informed their decisions can be and the, the better contribution they can make to, to, to society, broadly speaking. So, so, so that is basically what we mean by, by this difference between public and, and private mm. uh, uh, goods. In terms of funding, um, yes, I mean, uh, since then, we need to remember, you know, back in 2013, NISFAS, for instance, was a loan scheme and, 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 and people had to, to pay that back. But, you know, since 2016 and the Fees Must Fall campaign and, and everything that, that went with that, and, and after the, the previous president's decision, at, I think it was at the end of 2017, yeah. um, NISFAS, for instance, has become a, a, a bursary scheme. And the, the, the cutoff uh, rate for family income uh, it was more than doubled, etc. So that meant that, that we've actually spent billions and billions of rands per year more on, on, on tuition. Um, and, and maybe also just to give your, your, your uh, listeners a, a sense, so universities basically get money on the one side through government subsidy uh, per student, Mm. And on the other hand, we get uh, money uh, through the tuition fees that students usually pay. And this fund, of course, pays, then helps to pay the, the tuition fees. Okay. Um, of course, Prof, those subsidies are dissected in different ways. There would be input subsidies, so yes. the money that is sent uh, once the enrollments are sorted out, and there will be output subsidies mm -hmm. uh, which are based on the throughput in terms of uh, you know graduation stats mm -hmm. of those institutions and of course the number will differ for postgraduate students of various types um, yes. and, and 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 this has almost been and perhaps this is where now I must bring Dr. Mayer to talk a bit about this uh, Dr. Mayer uh, the issue of these subsidies by government has been debated a great deal um, in higher education 
situation. I'm not sure how far or where the debate is now. And I'll make an example, uh, you know, when students are coming in, especially for postgraduate research type of things, uh, where, you know, if you do your master's by research, uh, uh, that becomes a unit, uh, productivity unit of sorts, and uh, uh, the university might get 120,000 rands for that student, for a PhD student, 360,000. But some students have been raising the fact that these subsidies only accrue to the university and not to themselves and therefore uh, don't actually help enhance the quality of their research that they get. But uh, you can uh, you can unpack on that score, Dr. Mayor, but also maybe just expand this conversation on subsidies and some of the debates that are happening, whether or not uh, much of them are accruing at the right time to help universities to function or they at times come in too late. Thank you. Yes, so, so I think that uh, when we unpack this, obviously we can look at the economic and industrial policy imperatives that underpin the discussion. But if we look at the reality of the construct, what is important for us is that the NISFA system is, is a good system. Uh, it is something that as University of South Africa, we strongly support. It supports 65% of our student population. Of that, 70% of those students come from SASA beneficiary households. So it does cost us in the region of 46 billion per annum, mm. but we must remember to, to the social impact and the poverty alleviation and the social benefits far outweigh the cost uh, input to mm. the economy. The further element is obviously when we look at our systemic challenge. So this is around the missing middle students, which makes up approximately 20% of our student population. Now I know in terms of, of stats, data. The, the, the missing middle students are students between 350,000 and one rand and 600,000 rand. And that mm. equates to 6% of South African households. But in our student population, it equates to almost 20% of our student population. And this is where our real problem sits and our perennial that we are faced with that we're working with the Department of Higher Education and Training to find um, measurable solutions. And I'll get into that a little later. The, the further systemic issue is that universities are carrying a debt burden yep. of 16.5 billion. I know that there was a, a, a misprint in the minister's statement. Yeah, because it made it seem as it was, if it was 6.5 billion rather than 16. Mm. Yeah, yeah, so the 6.1 billion is for students that enrolled now that are current students, but the historic debt okay. is sitting at 6.5 billion. And of that 16.5 billion, that costs universities 1.25 billion per annum to service. Now, you can imagine a billion rand out of universities' budgets that they could be in infrastructure, in academic programs, mm. in a myriad of, of programs uh, across the academy. And the knowledge project, therefore, is compromised with these issues. So these are the issues that we're working with government to find solutions. How are we going to address the debt burden uh, to universities? And secondly, how we are going to find a solution with a missing middle. And a SIVA that is there from South, you know, a colleague from South works instrumentally with us on all of these solutions that we are trying to find uh, so that we can stabilize university system, both from a policy perspective, but also from an economic supportive uh, perspective. 
Well, Asif, uh, let me bring you in here from uh, Saul's point of view. You know, uh, students, uh, I mean, uh, have have been seen demonstrating over the years because of this fees question not being resolved adequately. I mean, uh, Dr. Mayer alluding to the fact that the missing middle makes up almost 20% of, you know, uh, the student population. And of course, this is a recent figure because that missing middle, according to the last threshold before uh, December 16, 2017 was probably much higher and probably contributed significantly to this historic student debt uh, that we are talking about uh, today as well. What is Saus's take in terms of what needs to be done to build a much more sustainable funding model for the higher education sector, Asire? Thank you very much. Uh, I think, uh, firstly, I'm, I must agree with the latter speakers. Uh, could not disagree. Uh, I think we've come a long way. Uh, as Prof. Berger gave you the the the, 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 the brief uh, timeline of where we're coming from, so I think we've really come a long way. Uh, if uh, I stand to be corrected, but I think right now about probably ninety percent of households in South Africa qualify uh, to be uh, funded under the new regime of three hundred fifty thousand per annum bracket. So I think that is that is absolutely incredible. Obviously, it has not come. It has not come shy of its challenges, particularly with the capacity of NESFAS to be able to administer those funds to the students. Hence, we would have seen, uh, 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 you know, the, the administrative challenges that we have suffered for the last few years. Albeit that they are doing much better now. So, I think as, as a starting point, that that funding model of NESFAS, we completely agree with it. Uh, obviously, it can always be improved, but it has taken us huge strides forward. Now, the the challenge that we, the two challenges that we still remain with that are absolutely uh, uh, somewhat devastating to the sector mm. as it pertains to funding is the issue number one of the missing middle, as uh, Dr. Linda May has already uh, spoken to, and the issue of historic debt, uh, as you have also briefly touched. Those things they remain absolutely devastating for the sector, and I think. Uh, uh, the, 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 the stakeholders that need to come to the party, I genuinely probably do not believe that universities have the capacity to deal uh, 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 sufficiently with these two challenges, uh, uh, at least on their own. So I think it is about time that we explore some of the models that we spoke about pre-2018 in terms of uh, 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 getting funds from the private sector. What we have suggested in the past uh, and which we think will work, it's probably not the most sustainable solution, uh, but it is probably the, the best one that we can explore right now, is maybe a zero or low interest loans uh, yeah. uh, for students that are in the missing middle. Uh, obviously, we appreciate that really in the long term, we're deferring the problem uh, uh, because someone eventually they have to pay off those loans uh, and it creates some sort of a cycle for them, uh, you know, in terms of the repayment and, uh, you know, and they and committing themselves for the first few years after working to paying off those loans, etc. But I, I think in the immediate, uh, this is something that we should really look into. Uh, These zero uh, interest loans uh, uh, that uh, to assist the, the, the missing middle students. And then in terms of debt. I think, uh, and our viewers' house is that we think government is not playing the role that they should be playing. Mm. We understand budgetary constraints, but we think government should 
uh, intervene here. Of course, working and raising funds from the private sector, but they should intervene with the issue of historic debt, particularly because we have students, uh, students that are still in the system that entered the system pre-2018. So uh, they were funded under the previous regime of 122,000 per annum bracket. So they accumulated uh, some of them because of N plus two and all of those things. But the bottom line is that, and in fact, majority of them really were in the missing meter then and accumulated this huge debt uh, and they still owing. Uh, 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 Dr. Linda Mayer will agree with me that this, the, the debt of 16.5 billion rand is not debt of the last two years or the last year or whatever. It, it, it dates back uh, uh, even some of it pre-2018. So I think government should intervene there uh, 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 to deal with that issue of debt. Mm. And then once that has been dealt with, then using these private-public partnership fundings, uh, such as your zero interest rate loans for uh, 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 missing middle and NESFAS for the poor and the working class, then I think we'll be able to bridge the gap. Mm. But in fact, but in fact, to bridge that gap and to some sort of a catch up, if you like, we need government to intervene and to pay off those outstanding debts. We think it will also alleviate a lot of pressure uh, from the universities, which yeah. will make them even much more effective in being able to assist us in many other challenges that where we believe universities are not playing the role that they should be playing in terms of student support. Yeah, seems as if the issue of historic student debt has been left for too long with government not picking up on many suggestions uh, that were placed to them over the last 10 years to actually try and nip this issue in the bud. I mean, some universities, their balance sheets are so bad, they can't even build them their own residences. They can't even go to the market to raise funds to build. Uh, they, they, they really have to rely on the charitable case of private sector that comes in into partnership. 0861987000 is the dial. I will open up this conversation uh, to you, people of power, Prof. Bega, Dr. Mayer, and Urlanjwa uh, are my guests this morning here on Power Talk. But let me pay some bills quickly and I will put a question to one of my guests before news headlines. Tweet Lukona at Lukona Mguni and hashtag Power Talk. Indeed, do that as uh, Shots has also done, saying, Look on, I'm a single parent in the missing middle with two kids in varsity. I'm under debt review. I don't qualify for bank loan. Give my kids loans whilst I sell my house in order to pay fees. Help. I mean, Prof. Berger, there are so many such instances where parents are literally drowning in debt. And there's what I call a fear of runaway costs so education costs are not you know uh, inexpensive in south africa council on higher education was once given a task by the minister to check whether or not the cost structure of our courses uh, modules is in fact still the right one i mean if i were to tell you how much i paid when i was in first year and how much that degree costs today i mean the the, the increase in these uh, modules and courses prof beggar seems to be on a runaway train to a point that uh, we might end up paying uh, in some day in future uh, 200,000 rands for tuition fees in some degrees. Uh, yes, indeed. So when you have a look at, you know, what a BCOM or a BA or a BSC, LLB or a B engineering costs, um, you know, there's, uh, if, if you look at that, that costs anything between 36,000 and 75,000 mm. rands a year in, in tuition fees. Yeah. Now, what has happened uh, up to uh, the fees must fall, uh, uh, you know, protests happened, 
was that for for about a decade up to up to that point in 2016 17 or 2016 uh, you know um, tuition fees increased at the rate of about two percentage points and uh, over the inflation rate Mm. Um, and and that was due to to various reasons, you know, the exchange rate uh, uh, deteriorated, which means meant uh, that the input costs uh, f- uh, that universities experienced increased much faster than the normal inflation rate experienced. And to make up for that, they then you know increased tuition fees with, with more than inflation. So such cost pressures played a role. Um, and uh, of course, after that, you know, every year now the the, the government approves the rate at which, uh, or sets basically the rate at which uh, tuition fees can be can be increased per mm. year. Uh, but but you know that that does create a bit of a problem in some universities where they still face cost increases in excess of of uh, of, of inflation, um, uh, in excess of inflation. But um, on, on the other hand, their tuition fees only increase at, at the rate more or less uh, equal to inflation. So, so that is not something that has actually been resolved by just capping the rate at which yeah. uh, tuition fees can increase. Okay, Prof, let's hold that thought. I'll come back to you after news headlines. It is half past 11, 0861 is the dial people of power this morning. David Sipo, I see you on the line. I will take your calls after news headlines. My guest, Prof Berger, Dr. Mayer, and uh, Asivet Landjua uh, joining us on this conversation about educa- higher education funding in South Africa. You're listening to Power Talk with Luca, 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 I am Glucon Amguni on Power 98.7. Indeed, 26 minutes to the hour, 12 o'clock here on Power 98.7. Higher education and the progress on funding. My guests, uh, Prof. Berger, Dr. Mayer and Asivet Lanja are on the line. But let me go to those calls so that I don't keep you people of power uh, waiting for too long. David, a very good morning to you. Morning, how are you? Man? I'm well, how are you this morning? Good, man. You want to just a quick one? Man. Yeah. We were discussing with the gentleman there. I want to find out with this uh, what what what's to be done for NEPSPAS to start supporting students that are on a private university. Because when you apply, they said they don't know they don't support those universities. Okay. Or where can the student get some funds? Okay. Yep. Not a problem, David. I got you. I also, I mean, I spoke to someone about this yesterday, uh, private colleges and, you know, uh, funding by NSFAS, especially when public institutions are oversubscribed, but people still want to be educated. Sipo, good morning. Good morning, Lukona. How are you? I'm well. How are you this morning? Ah, good. Thanks, man. Lukona, I just have a question for all your guests there. Mm. Um have they explored um, efforts of students under postgraduate studies as one of the mechanisms to contribute to what funding higher education or reducing this student debt? I'll give an example. Mm. A student at an honors, master's, and doctoral level will co-author an article that they will publish with one of the academic staff. Mm. And such students will only get credit that they have published. But when institutions get funding from DHEAD for their, for their articles, yeah. there is no portion that is directed towards reducing these students' um, 
fees. Yeah. Institutions absorb those funds, and Professor Yangsin calls that academic fraud. Mm. where even some of these professors take credit for work that is solely done by these students. Mm. Mm. We criticize the youth for not being active or contributing to, to this country, but here's an area where they've put all their energy in, but still they carry the debt burden. That professors and institutions sit with fat accounts that they cannot even contribute into this challenge for funding. Sipo, I'd you, like to get your guests your, your to respond on that. Thank you so much. You're raising something so, so important. Prof. Tomaselli would call it academic slavery. <laughs> Dr. Mayor, um, uh, th- there are questions about Dennis for supporting private uh, universities slash colleges, but Sipo raises something even much more important. And of course, the excuse that some universities give is that students don't have uh, you know research uh, centers or research codes whatever language is used in institutions therefore uh, nothing monetary will accrue to them yet the article of course would have gone out there and fetched the university uh, good revenue this I mean uh, saying Sipo uh, this should be adding to alleviating the burden of funding of course I know academics who out of their own volition uh, would volunteer funds from their research codes and pay for fees or registration monies uh, for some students but also that's a process that's met with a lot of red tape in most of these universities the kind of, yes it, it is uh, it, it's an interesting uh, topic that has been raised and something that we, we obviously have started engaging with but we must understand that when we publish there are associated costs with that publications we don't uh, you know we don't publish for free South Africa is is paying over 300 million a year, you know, universities for for journals and publications. So those costs are offset, but certainly it is is something that we could investigate uh, further with with institutions and students um, as we go forward. So so thank you for raising uh, yeah. that issue. The the second issue, and and also on the back of that, obviously, is the funding of postgraduate students. Mm. And last. Last year, you know, we were we were most disheartened when the NRS budget was cut by some 30%. Yes. And we, we have made uh, pleas to the Department of Higher Education and Training that we are not faced with the same situation as we go forward. And of On course, Dr. Mayer, just yes. before we complete that particular point, mm-hmm. um, some universities have proactively taken the decision that if you are doing a master's by, uh, by research, for example, or a PhD by, you know, a, you get a fee remission and some institutions have not moved uh, to that uh, particular direction. I mean, uh, surely this also needs a bit of a conversation in terms of managing these fees because the state uh, can throw in as much money as there is, but if the fees keep going up, I mean, uh, we are going to still have a problem of uh, disproportionate uh, money versus what is needed. Absolutely. And I, and I think that we've been so centered on, on, the, on the issues around financing students in the undergraduate domain and many of these issues we haven't paid sufficient attention to. So yeah. I'm the first to acknowledge that. And it is something that, that we need to, as we put these other issues to bed, we need to start focusing on the, on the knowledge project in, in the academies. Um, so, so very important. And, and thank you for the, for the caller that raised that mm, issue. Mm. In terms of the NISFAS funding and funding private higher education institutions, the, the, the current policy is that only... Uh, only public institutions of higher learning and TVET colleges, CET college and, and uh, Abbott centers are are funded 
um, you know, through, through government funding. But the opportunities that exist for private institutions are through CETAs, are through obviously private bursaries and so forth. So the big thing is around really the availability of funds and the availability of government to expand that into the private sector. Mm-hmm. When at the moment we only have sufficient funding to pay for students that have applied to public institutions. But certainly, as we get policy certainty, as we get alternative mechanisms, for example, to support the missing middle students, and, and that um, message from, from your listener about you know, having to mortgage her house uh, to be able to pay for her students, uh, two of her children, in universities is, is heartbreaking. Mm. Because what we are saying is that the value of education has to come at the cost of social stability around people being able to eat, having a roof over their head. Mm. And for missing middle students, this is why we're busy with the Department of Higher Education and Training, exploring various alternatives with the bank. So you'll see that Capitec is a low interest loan for their clients now if, if their children want to study. Yeah. But around the commercial banks that we have, uh, you know, for example, as I see, said, low interest loans or where governments stand surety for these loans or that we look at a model uh, after someone earns a specific threshold of income that they would then start paying back or lower tax uh, in, uh, incentives so that individuals take those loans as they pay them back. So there's a myriad of options on the table, but we earnestly and sincerely have to start engaging with those to find this measurable solution so that we don't have as your listeners, uh, you know, are sending messages that they are putting their economic security at yeah. risk to ensure the future of their children. Absolutely. And of course, some people have even suggested that they be allowed an opportunity to dip into their pension savings, especially if they are within, you know, the public sector. Uh, Asive, I mean, uh, so many ideas being generated. First, I'd like you to respond to the one on private uh, universities slash colleges, because it is something that has kept on coming up uh, on this show. What should be done for those type of students? Uh, Sometimes they go there not because they did not try to apply to any of the public institutions they would have but you know you, you get oversubscribed i mean universities will say we're taking seven thousand first years this year eight thousand this year and therefore eventually some people can't make it in there yes no thank you very much i think it's a very difficult one because the reality is that we do not have the necessary capacity within public institutions uh, to absorb uh, all of those students that qualify outside in fact out of metric uh, or grade 12. So uh, it is a difficult one because uh, I suppose if the, if, if, if the courses are accredited, duly uh, uh, accredited with all necessarily body, necessary bodies, we should carry on to fund them or rather then we run the risk uh, of, of excluding uh, students who are deserving to be funded and who are deserving to study based on the fact that on structural reasons and things that are far way beyond uh, their control. So I don't think uh, defunding or not finding students that are in, the pri- in private institutions would necessarily work. But what we just must be in check of, uh, which might be a little bit difficult, is of course the cost of education in those uh, uh, institutions, number one, and the fact that they are accredited. But for as long as we have uh, the constraints that we have in terms of capacity, then I definitely think that uh, we, it, we should carry on to fund those students uh, because they also go on to contribute uh, to uh, one, to the alleviation of poverty in their families and their societies, and generally contribute broadly to the economy. 
so we we must fund them. If uh, yeah, yeah. So I think that would be my view yeah. on that. Asive, there, there has been, of course, uh, you know, a disagreement among even students themselves who are proponents of uh, uh, of free higher education. I mean, when I made a presentation to the HEHA Commission, I simply said the best solution to what we are dealing with here in South Africa, for me, is at least that everybody gets free higher education and people will start disagreeing with you. No, but Mutsepe's uh, child can't get free education. And I said, but you solve the problem at source in terms of progressive taxation to create uh, money for, for, for free higher education. What, what's your view as ASIV and perhaps as the South African Union of Students? Because my worry, I'll tell you why I ask this question this way. My worry is that in fact, even that bracket of missing middle has actually become outdated because households are under strain, inflation is high, incomes have reduced because of COVID-19. And in fact, that household uh, threshold might be far broader than what we thought it was in 2016 when we yeah. started on this journey. As a matter of principle, uh, uh, and maybe uh, more ideological than, uh, than anything, uh, is that... We completely agree, and that has been our call for the longest time, is that all South Africans should have access to free higher education. Uh, but obviously, appreciating where we find ourselves as a country, the reality is that it is not possible, at least not within the immediate term. However, with students, our proposal has been and remains that students up to the 600,000 600, threshold, those students should be receiving free higher education. Uh, uh, for many reasons, uh, which we have, we, we have explored. But you see, this challenge, uh, it, is, it is also at a more political level uh, uh, or maybe at a general level. Uh, it, 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 there are issues here, like, for instance, the, 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 the will of government to want to, to recognize, first of all, the need and the role and the position of higher education in the development of South Africa, number one. Number two, uh, to, 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 not to treat it as some sort. Let me give you an example to show you that I think our, it might be minor, the example that I'm going to give you. I think our focus as a South African government in terms of higher education, uh, uh, our expectations are not met by our mm-hmm. investment. I'll give you an example. Last year, we started the conversation around the new funding guidelines of NESFAS. This is well within time. Before November, uh, we started the conversation around mandatory vaccination with October with uh, UCT. You would have hoped and you would have assumed that our government, through the higher education department, would have already got onto the uh, uh, back of these uh, of these conversations to ensure that by the time the academic year begins, they are ready and there would be no instability in institutions of higher learning. But four, three weeks into register, well, two weeks into registration, only then. We, uh, the department is wanting to participate yeah. uh, effectively in some of this conversation. What is the point that I'm making? Is that that is the, the level of seriousness or or or, 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 or investment, uh, or rather the lack thereof uh, that is displayed by our government shows serious disdain and disregard for the role that higher education has to play in the mm-hmm. development of our society. Because let me give you another example. You've got, I think, we, I, I, I tend to be corrected. We're spending over 56 billion rand. In, 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 in a peacekeeping mission in Congo, uh, 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 and you are saying you do not have 9 billion rand 
for higher education. It's an issue of priorities. Mm. I don't think we prioritize okay. education as much as we think okay. we do. And then lastly, on the issue of institutions, institutions have a big... Take the salaries of vice-chancellors. The, 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 the expense sheet of institutions is just too bloated. Universities yeah. are spending more than they should. Okay. It is a fact. And if we can also get a, if we alleviate pressure and we reprioritize also from the spending of institutions and universities, we can take down the cost of higher education far, far, far greatly. So okay. I think those two stakeholders let's, have a serious role to play. Let, in terms let's of leave, the cost let's of leave it there for now. I won't, I won't commit to those figures about the peace mission in Congo at the moment, but I'll invite people of power as uh, 0861987000 is the uh, dial here. We are talking about uh, the progress made in funding for higher education. Beggar from the University of Free State, Dr. Mayer uh, with University of South Africa and Asivet Lanja, uh, South African Union of Students are my guests. I'm told I've got to pay bills quickly. I will come back and Prof. Beggar, I want us to talk about, uh, you know, uh, part of your work that you do on inequality. When we say this is the most unequal society in the world, what should we be talking about or like when we discuss issues of funding for education generally, but more specifically higher education? Power Talk with Lukonam Guni. Paul Lukona on 0861 987 Indeed, or send me a tweet at Lukonam Guni, hashtag Power Talk this morning. 10 minutes to 12 o'clock. That's all we have to conclude uh, this conversation. Prof. Berger, uh, part of your cap is really to do work around, you know, you know, inequality studies. And what does it mean when we are the most unequal society in the world and we are having these conversations? How do we make sure that that context does not escape us. Uh, thanks for that. I think it's uh, it, it basically means that a very very large proportion of our population um, uh, are, are still dispossessed and, and and lack the resources to to, to ensure upward mobility. Uh, you know, in life, in in, in, in uh, you know, paying for education, etc. Uh, and and I, I want to come back to something I see where uh, is said in terms of prioritization. And I think that that is a, a very important point for us to touch on. Um, you know, so first of all, I, I agree with him in terms of the loan scheme and the low interest uh, loans. Mm. Um, but, you know, when we look at uh, if, if we want to pull in the private sector, you know, if you're a private bank and you need to decide whether you're going to lend money for somebody to buy a car at 10.5% or uh, uh, to a student uh, at 2%, you know, they might go for the car because it brings in more interest income. So mm-hmm. there will be a need for government then to cross-subsidize that interest payment so that the bank has, has properly incentivized to, to come to the party, uh, but that the loan is, is has a sufficiently low interest rate to make it affordable to the student. That is sort of the negotiations that need to take place. But broader speaking, when we talk about education, you talked about it, you asked about education in general. Mm. Um, you know, the, we also need to look at priorities there. You know, it strikes me, for instance, that in South Africa, there, uh, there are still a quarter of our schools that have things like pit toilets, mm. uh, and 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 thirteen or fourteen percent of schools only have pit toilets. You know, uh, it's it's it's, uh, it's over three thousand schools, and 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 that is just in terms of of that very basic thing that touches on 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 uh, on, on people's dignity. Um, but but there's also things like science labs. Only 15% of schools have science labs. Only 31% of schools have computer labs. Only 20% of schools have access to internet for teaching and learning. 
if we want to prepare our uh, our young for, for for the next generation and to prepare them for economic growth then those are the things we need to invest in to make sure that they are right you know so that the first time someone switches on the computers not when they the day when they arrive at the university um so so that's that's the type of things yeah. that that we need to do and 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 you know so students have a, a big voice because you know uh through organizations such as asiwes you know they they speak up but preschool education primary school kids secondary school kids they don't have that voice and yeah. and and that in, in talking to government you know it's our job as as people who need to inform policy and to influence policy to to tell government to to emphasize that because what we also see very often is that it is the easiest place to cut is is, is the education budget you know so, so so when when the government is under pressure what do they do the, the first thing they do is to cut yeah. uh, uh, the education budget so um and, and dr mayer talked about the the nrf uh, you know budget all of these things they are just it's 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 cut too easily because yes. uh, others have bigger voices in pressuring and, and that's something we need to watch in fact prof bega wanna bring dr mayer in here i mean dr mayer uh, prof bega talking about you know if if if, if a bank wants has a choice whether to loan me for a car at a higher interest rate and a student at very low it will make that choice and hence the ikusasa student financial aid program isfap which of course was meant to be a pilot at the time when uh, uh, mr sizwang masana was the board chair at nsfas and then of course it has now morphed into an entity of its own these ideas have been put uh, to the table what is it in the decision making process dr mayor that is seemingly going a little bit slow stardach in helping us make a sustainable choice so the encouraging news is that we have been busy for the last 12 months in engaging with the department and and various stakeholders and the commercial banks mm. around these issues but commercial banks have clearly said they are not going to take uh, this risk if it's unsecured so government would have to stand surety mm, for mm. Uh, such a loan scheme if it is at a low interest loan and they're willing to to negotiate around those issues but that is not the only solution uh, certainly that we're looking at um but yeah i mean when when there's a commercial interest obviously profit is always the incentive yeah. but we need to start balancing this in terms of the social compact the greater good of what it is that we that we're trying to achieve and of course uh, the, on the other side dr mayer when the expansion of the threshold for nsfas for example was done in 2017 uh, part of the criticism was there had been no clear vision as to how throughput uh, would be you know uh, supported because when we looked at throughput rates amongst the nsfas um, cohort of students they were not as impressive so uh, issue there being government must not throw money and uh, we then don't see success rates uh, what kind of conversation is happening in ensuring that our students are supported as much as possible so that they actually succeed and could go uh, into the labor market and seek jobs and or, or become entrepreneurs so uh the, the interesting uh, fact that i just want to share with you is that our nisfa students do marginally better in our throughput rates than our missing middle and the primary reason for that is that they are not uh, subjected to financial exclusions they don't have this additional pressure around accommodation fees and so forth so the value the, the return on investment really is positive in terms of the output 
at the end of, of, of this investment. And it's something that we must look at. Also, that the NISFAS threshold is not adjusted by CPI annually. Mm. It, is, it is capped at this amount. And we must be realistic. If you have a household with an income of 500,000 rand and you have three children at school, two children at university, you're going to find it very difficult to make ends meet. So we need to have pragmatic uh, discussions, but we need to be realistic in terms of our expectations, uh, both of the system, but also what it is that we are offering as a value proposition to ensure that we have the required skill sets to drive the economy and to ensure that industrial policy requirements are inevitably met. Prof. Bega, one of the issues uh, that uh, keeps, uh, you know, to a great degree haunting me is the fact that our institutions are not, how do I put this without sounding otherwise? Um, our institutions are not at the same level in terms of their research output that can be translated into third stream funding. So okay. you find that others, you know, can patent prototype and do intellectual property uh, security much better than others. Have we done enough to, you know, I mean, I've looked at universities like Forte or Altasasul University, uh, bulk of their income is literally coming from NSFAS uh, funding and nothing is done to support those institutions to make sure that their third stream income ability is bolstered up. What can we do uh, to make sure that we close these inequality gaps across our institutions? Well, first of all, as, as a country, you know, and as percentage of GDP, I mean, other words, as a percentage of total income we generate in, in the country, South Africa is spending on the low side when it gets to R&D, you know, research mm, and development. Mm, mm. Uh, it's usually between a, a half and 0.8% of, of GDP. So that we need to increase that. But but then secondly, I think, you know, we, we shouldn't try to be everything for everyone. So I think, you know, institutions need to look at uh, what can they focus on. So, uh, uh, and, and if, if you are an institution that is not, uh, uh, that doesn't have a big stream of, of uh, third stream income, you know, uh, then pick two or three or four areas where you, where you can focus your resources on, build that out, build a reputation for those things. And then that in turn will, will start generating attention and, and generating more funding to, to, to build it out. Mm. Well, I suppose that this conversation is an ongoing one and we will probably continue to call on your expertise, both Prof. Bega and Dr. Mayer, but we are out of time. Asive uh, did drop out of the call and we have not been able uh, to get him back on the line. But let me thank you both uh, for making time for us this morning. You've been listening to a Power 98.7 podcast. For more podcasts, visit power987.co.za or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.